It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode 28 in my series entitled Spiritual Lessons from World War I. I am staring out at a brand new crop of students. Uh, So for those of you that are hearing this via podcast, I just wish you could see what I see. Uh, it's, it's odd because usually our one-week training, which we had last week, and then our fall five-week have a little distance between them. But in this case, it was literally just flip uh, everything around, and we have a new uh, batch of students here. And it's tough saying goodbye to our one-weeks. And that was just an amazing week that we just had. But it is also very, very special having you guys uh, here. And our opening night banquet uh, was pretty special. And not because of just the food. By the way, I didn't even get a dessert, and I'm still saying that. And I, from what I understand, that cheesecake was amazing. Uh, but it is just really special having you guys here. But it's also, you know, a unique since we have a series that we're going through called Spiritual Lessons from World War One, and yet. Uh, we're starting on the 28th episode when you guys arrive, and you'll be here for five weeks. So you'll literally be here for the conclusion of this series, but you start like not even in the middle, it's like after the middle. And so it's an odd thing, and it's hard to just catch you up in something, because if you, if you think that each of my messages is right around an hour, that means we've had about 27 hours of teaching on World War I uh, before you arrived. Uh, isn't that an amazing uh, thought? And so there's a few of you in here that are caught up, but there's a few of you that are just going to be blindsided with how fun this is. So this is called The Zone Rouge. Uh, it's part 28. Uh, I, I, in this series, uh, I've, there's a lot of French and a lot of German, just a lot of things that I've mispronounced. Let's just put it that way. And I don't uh, speak French, which is, uh, there's a few of you out there going, that's obvious, uh, as uh, we've been going through this series. But it's actually part of the humor of the series, too, is that Eric isn't very, I'm really good with English. But then, I, uh, but then we even had one English word, I don't even want to say it, uh, but I even titled it, and I was like, I love this word, but I've been mispronouncing it my entire life. And so then I mispronounced it for the episode. Uh, and then I had this sort of English uh, guy at the end, you know, that specializes in pronunciations tell me, by the way, I know this might be awkward, but you mispronounced that word the entire time. Uh, so even my English has uh, had some moments. Uh, but uh, the zone rouge. I really like the word rouge. Uh, That's really fascinating to me, but it means red. And so this is the equivalent of saying the red zone. Verdun, France, the trap. So we are well into, well, I don't really want to say it, not time-wise, but we're well into our flow of World War I. The main events that shape World War I are already out on the table in this series. And I'm going to just sort of do a quick overview, but we're at a, a key juncture of the war which is called the Battle of Verdun. And the Battle of Verdun, I will go into some basics for it, but uh, it's one of the most intriguing. You know, like when I've studied through World War I and then I, I hearken back, uh, Verdun is probably one of the most intriguing to my brain and to my mind, along with the battle called Passchendaele. Those two like really stand out to me. We haven't gotten to Passchendaele yet. But uh, this is a key time in the war, and I'm gonna call this the trap. Okay, it's a very purposeful thing to bait France into uh, a war of what the Germans will call attrition, which is to, they want to uh, kill as many French as they can. That's the new strategy uh, in World War I. So here's our map. We've used this map quite a few times uh, throughout this uh, series. And the reddish-purple colored countries, those are our central powers, uh, also known as the Triple Alliance. But uh, the reason why they're not going to be called the Triple Alliance in World War I uh, is because Italy is not going to participate. Italy is in an alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary, but since Germany and Austria-Hungary are going to be the aggressors in World War I, Italy is going to back out. And so you're going to start with Germany and Austria-Hungary. Now, they're going to get additional uh, help. For instance, we just talked in the last message about Turkey down there in the bottom right. The Ottoman Empire is going to join them, and that uh, leads to what we just went through in our last message. But uh, then we have the blue countries, which are going to be the allied powers, 
or at the start of the war, they're going to be called the Triple Entente. And so let me just go through a few different things. You see that star I just put on the screen right at Sarajevo? That is going to be where Gavrilo Princip, who would be considered a Serbian terrorist, is going to come into Austria-Hungary, to Sarajevo. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand is in a parade. And uh, it's, it's quite the story. But long and short, Gavrilo Princis, Prince, Princip is going to shoot the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And he's not the king. He's just the heir apparent. And, you know, for most of us would think, why would that cause a world war? And you'd be correct in thinking that. However, Germany has been waiting for the moment to initiate what they call Der Tag, which is the day. And they have an entire plan set, and this just seems like the ultimate excuse. The reason is, Austria-Hungary is going to declare war on Serbia. That makes sense to the world. I mean, hey, you come into our territory, kill our heir apparent to the throne, we're not going to just sit by and do nothing. So that makes sense. However, Serbia has a, has a big brother, and it's known as Russia. Russia protects Serbia. If Serbia is ever in trouble, then Russia will come to his aid. So the Russian military begins to mobilize. So what that does is that triggers uh, the clock for Germany. Now, Germany is going to do the strangest thing. It is going to declare war uh, on Russia and also on France. And you could be like, what does France have to do with this? Well, you see, France is a longtime enemy of Germany, and Germany feels encircled. I mean, if you look at its location there, uh, they're not getting along well with Russia right now, and they're also not getting along with France, and they don't trust the United Kingdom. So they feel encircled, and they feel that if they were to go to war against Russia, guess who Russia has an ally with? France and Great Britain. So as a result, they don't want to have a two-front war, so to solve that, they're going to hit France first because Russia takes a long time to get out of bed and get moving, right? So they, have, they figure that they have 39 days, and if they can reach Paris in 39 days and, and shut down France, then they can turn all their forces against Russia, and they can do this thing. It's called the Schlieffen Plan. Okay, so they're going to go in and they're going to try and capture that star that I just put in France. That's, that's at Paris. Now, the location is a little off, but it's close, right? And as they're doing it, everything looks like they're going to succeed. And technically, World War I probably wouldn't have been called World War I if they did succeed. And it's going to, you know, be even under 39 days. They're doing it. They're actually going to do this. And the German military looks amazing. They are very impressive. And they're going to make a choice right before they get to Paris to turn. And there's a reason for that. And I go into great depth in, in the sessions so far to show what is going to happen. And that's going to open up their flank. When you're in a military maneuver, classic military history is always you're trying to outflank your opponent, which is sort of the side of their army. If you can hit them from the side, you've got them. And that's where they're weak and they're vulnerable. And so the Germans have been unstoppable up to this point. And then right at the last minute, before their victory is going to be realized, they're going to turn. Did you guys see that? Watch. See that? They're going to turn, and they're going to expose their flank, and, which is hard to explain just in a nutshell. But long and short, just trust me, it's an amazing moment in history because France and Great Britain are basically defeated, and yet they have armies right there to the flank that was just exposed. And so they're going to attack the flank of Germany. It's called the Battle of the Marne. And, they're going, and the Germans are going to be totally destroyed. And they're going to go into the retreat position. And so what that's going to end up forming, this is a massive summary of quite a few events, it's going to end up forming a line where the Germans are going to go on the defensive, but then they're going to entrench themselves. And then the allies are going to try and break through, but they can't break through. And the Germans can't break through back, and it's going to create a stalemate, and that is called the Western Front. And so what World War I is known for is the Western Front. And that Western Front, I mean, to most of us in the years you know, that we live in, we're thinking, uh, <clears throat> isn't there a better way than to just kill a whole bunch of people? Millions of men are going to die. Million, there were over a million men that died in the first month of World War I. This is like a total disaster. An entire generation of men is going to be destroyed in this, 
entire movement known as World War I. Many of us don't know about World War I. We know a little bit more about World War II. We know about Hitler and Churchill and Stalin and uh, Mussolini. And we know about Pearl Harbor. There's things that we know, but in World War I, oftentimes it's somewhat of a blur. And if I were to say, who won World War I? You're like, ah, well, you know, we're just sort of assuming it's the, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, the good guys. Uh, <laughs> so in other words, we don't know a lot about it. And yet World War I is going to actually be the cause of World War II. And World War I is going to be the cause of what we know as communism. And what World War I is going to also be the cause of the Middle East crisis that we've all grown up around. And World War I is going to be the cause of almost everything you know and understand in your world today. And so it's rather important that you know World War I to recognize what is taking place. The world was very different before World War I. But something is going to happen in this time, this what we could call an atrocity. I mean, it's terrible what is going to take a place, a disaster. And yet that disaster is going to shape so much of our world today. In fact, America is going to go from being a, a strong power, don't get me wrong, to the world power uh, at the end of World War I. Why? Because for the first part of World War I, it wasn't involved in World War I. That was a nice feature. So as a result, all the other nations were borrowing from America and we were manufacturing all their weapons. And so it's like the World Bank went from London to New York City. And it all happened in World War I. America became America uh, in World War I, the America we know, the superpower. And so there's a lot of things taking place, and uh, we've gone back and forth. In fact, in this series, we've had some fun journeys to the Wild West. We've hung out in America a few times, which seems really strange in World War I. It's like, what does that have to do with it? We're dealing with the Mexican-American uh, War, which is like, what does that have to do with World War I? It has a lot to do with World War I, which has been sort of fun uh, to go uh, through that adventure. In America, the, the president is Woodrow Wilson at this time, and uh, he's sort of an interesting character. And in the last, uh, well, I guess it was last, uh, I don't know, Wednesday, uh, we had a message about Pancho Villa, if you've ever heard of Pancho Villa. That doesn't feel like it fits into World War I at all, but it, it does because Germany's the one sponsoring Pancho Villa to try and distract America from focusing in the European war. All right, guys. So I just put another star there. Now I'm going to take it off and put it back again. Watch this. Boom. It's right on the middle of the Western Front. That is a place called Verdun. Okay, so this is where we're at in the war. We're in 1915, and we're at a crucial dimension where there's a stalemate. And the Germans have a problem because the Germans have limited resource to draw from. They only have Germany, whereas Great Britain has commonwealth nations, dominions, uh, and colonies. And they have almost what you could say unlimited manpower to draw in from Australia, New Zealand, from Canada, from India, and France has dominions and commonwealths as well, a lot of them in Africa. And so as a result, they can bring in all of these men, and they have access to uh, military uh, machinery and artillery and things like that because they have shipping, whereas Germany's shipping is on lockdown, and so they can't get things in. So they're starting to starve uh, come the, the winter of 1915. And so they have to do something to break through in this battle. They need to do something to break the stalemate. They can't seem to break through the Western Front, so they need a strategy. And their strategy becomes Verdun. So here's the guy that's now over the military operations for the Germans. And his name is Eric von Falkenhayn. There's all sorts of Erics, which is really awkward for me. And they're usually the bad guys in the story. Uh, so it's a little rough uh, for me. But this is his strategy. We must bleed France white. You see, his strategy is let's create a meat grinder that destroys all of the French uh, army. And then when France has no more to fight with, then we'll go after the British with our U-boats and shut down their shipping and they'll dry up. This is, their, this is their strategy, just destroy. That is the way that they'll get this done is if we just destroy them and they have no more life left and we bleed them white, then, hey, that will work. It's a pretty desperate situation when that becomes the new battle strategy. And yet that's exactly what's taking place. So Eric von Falkenhayn is going to 
pick Verdun, France, and there's a reason for it. Verdun is what we could call the sacred territory of France. It would be the national treasure. So what he wants to do is he wants to hit Verdun with everything he has. And you've never seen such a movement of a military and so much artillery headed in one direction. He wants to go at it in such a way that it causes the French to panic, where the French bring in everything. Because if there is one place in all of France they cannot lose, it's Verdun. And that's why he wants to go after it. It's a trap. He doesn't actually want to win the battle. He wants to just grind up French lives in it. So I, this isn't an actual picture of Verdun, France uh, back in 1915, because I don't have such a picture uh, of Verdun, France. However, it was supposedly amazing. And when we say an enchanted forest, you know, it's like the enchanted French forest, right? And that's sort of what we had at one point in time. And whether or not that's a perfect picture for it, it is a pretty nice picture, and I would like to be in that forest. So I'm going to say the enchanted French forests of Verdun. And I'm going to describe them, and so you can use your imagination and sort of join with me in the uh, description. There are tall, magnificent, ancient trees all around, swallowing the forest visitor up like a lover's intimate embrace. These trees are older than anyone's memory, boasting large multicolored autumnal leaves, dancing and swaying with the singing of tens of thousands of happy birds. Babbling brooks weave throughout the rich, loamy floor while soft breezes flit about in the wooded vale, sharing their spice-laden fragrances. Shafts of soft, heavenly light break through the leafy canopy above, reminding all living things, prancing, swaying, singing, and scurrying about below that God Almighty is the master of this aged wood. Wildflowers, moss, and forest carpet grow everywhere the eye glances, while bunnies, squirrels, foxes, and deer playfully frolic about enjoying this paradise of life and abundance. See, that's like the type of place we want to be. It's a picture of God's creation. There's something good there. And yet, all in one day, it's lost. So this is February 21st, 1916. As we head into the year 1916, Eric von Falkenheim moves into position with stealth. He doesn't want the French to realize what he's about to do. He wants them to panic. And so all along this line, they could be attacking anywhere, and yet nothing has been so concentrated in an attack where they're going to put all of their artillery, and the Germans have a lot of artillery. And these are going to be those sort of those bombshells that are going to come in and go and crash. And just one of those can create a crater, you know, like about the size of this room, right? Just one. And yet they're not just going to bring in one or one shell and just, you know, throw something up and, you know, put a little dent into Verdun. No, they have a different plan. So listen to this. The goal is to bait France to spend itself to preserve this sacred place. They're going to bring in, listen to this, two million artillery shells in the first six days are going to land. <laughs> two million. Just sort of imagine being a soldier on the ground and having two million bomb blasts. Just one bomb blast. If we had one bomb blast here near the campus, it would be enough to shake us. Uh, but could you imagine two million? I mean, that's, that's so incomprehensible. I, I remember Josh Kinnebrew sent me a, an audio of what it would have sounded like to have that many artillery shells going off and you cannot discern, so someone created a, a soundtrack for it, and you cannot discern the difference between, it's like, and it's just, they're, they're all massive. You, it's so loud, it's deafening. And the initial barrage was audible over 100 miles away. Uh, and then it's described as a gigantic forge. All it looks like is just fire. Uh, I don't know if that triggers any type of cinematic thoughts for you of a territory that looks like a gigantic forge, uh, a territory that is craterous and dead. Uh, but there is a writer that was in uh, World War I that witnessed this very same phenomenon that is going to write multiple novels uh, that is going to describe it. So if it sounds familiar, that's uh, because it is. Uh, the enchanted forest becomes the land of Mordor. And so what you're going to see is the resulting effect of what man is going to do to man, to try and destroy man, is going to lead to 
dead zones, zones of complete annihilation, where there once was beauty, there is going to be nothing left. And what is also going to happen is it's not just bombs or these artillery shells that are going off, creating craters, but then they're going to send in chemical sorts of bombs that are going to create uh, these different effects of gases and chemicals, which is all going to leach into the soil. And you can imagine how nice this territory is after all of that taking place. You know, mix in all the dead bodies, all the dead horses, carcasses. It's like, yeah, uh, it is a dead zone in every sense of the word. So I didn't have a good picture of this. It's really hard because I could give some black and white pictures, but none of them quite say it. But it's hard to describe a zone rouge. It's hard to define a Mordor. Uh, you know, obviously Peter Jackson did a fairly decent job of it. So here's J.R.R. Tolkien, who was uh, not necessarily at Verdun, uh, but because uh, that was a France versus Germany war and he was British. But he is going to describe the same things. And it's very interesting to really wrap your mind around this. The gasping pools were choked with ash and crawling muds, sickly white and gray as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. High mounds of crushed and powdered rock, great cones of earth, fire blasted and poison stained, stood like an obscene graveyard in endless rows, slowly revealed in the reluctant light. Mordor was a dying land, but it was not yet dead, and here things still grew harsh, twisted, bitter, struggling for life. In the glens of the Morgay, on the other side of the valley, how scrubby trees lurked and clung. Coarse gray grass tussocks fought with the stones and withered mosses crawled on them. And everywhere great writhing, tangled brambles spawned. Some had long stabbing thorns, some hooked barbs that rent like knives. The sullen shriveled leaves of a past year hung on them, grating and rattling in the sad airs. But their maggot-ridden buds were only just opening. Flies dun or gray or black marked like orcs with a red eye-shaped red eye shaped blotch buzzed and stung, and above the briar thickets, clouds of hungry midges danced and reeled. How would you like to move there? See, it's funny because I read about our enchanted forest, and some of you are like, very intrigued. Maybe you'd like to move there, but this isn't attractive to the soul. And yet this, in a sense, is what is left over after the damage is done. We have an enemy that has come and tried to create, in a sense, a Verdun on the very territory, the sacred possession of God. And what we see is a similar impact where what is left over is desolate. It is desolate of life. It can't produce the fruit of God anymore. And we could say, welcome to the human life. Welcome to the world in which we live. Now it's not, I mean, we have beauty in our world still, but it's interesting because in the spiritual sense, there's a lot of parallel. So Paul Nash, who was a British painter, this was his description. I was transfixed by the most frightful nightmare of a country, more conceived by Dante or Poe than by nature, with no glimmer of God's hand to be seen anywhere. Sunrise and sunset are blasphemies. They are mockeries to man. The Zone Rouge. Even a hundred years later, listen to this. So this is the sign around this zone, and it is walled off because it is extremely dangerous territory. It's a hundred years later. People still die there from buried artillery shells. So there are excavators, people that are licensed to go in there and actually try and unbury the territory, to try and clear this up. Even if it takes hundreds and hundreds of years, their goal is to clear out this territory and, and redeem it. And yet pe many people, I don't know if I could say thousands, have died over the last hundred years trying to get these artillery shells out because they'll go off. Some of them will land and not go off, and then they'll go off. And so it's not the most pleasant thought. Uh, and so people still die there from buried artillery shells. Arsenic still poisons the soil in Verdun. And the enchanted forest that once was is now a mere myth to the present generation. Flora Drury, a journalist, said this. Inside the toxic grave of the longest battle in history, the French forest where 300,000 died, there was over a million casualties, 300,000 of them were deaths, over 300,000 died in 300 days at the Battle of Verdun. 
is still littered with so many bodies, arsenic, and unexploded shells that nothing grows after a hundred years. That is is astounding. I mean, it's hard for my brain to comprehend that even after a hundred years. And yet, it's interesting because what we see sin doing in our lives is not altogether different. We could say after 6,000 years, still nothing of God can grow in the soil of unredeemed humanity. Isn't that an interesting thought? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which were originally designed to spring forth and bud inside of us, can no longer grow inside of us. Something is wrong with the soil. There, is, there was a cataclysmic battle that took place, and it would appear that all is lost. Does anyone remember the forests of Redun? It's interesting because, you know, we talked about at our banquet last night, talking about true Christianity and how it seems lost and even extinct. And the grand version of it that once strolled this world seems to be a, uh, you know, of a bygone era. And so when we look back at uh, the early church in the book of Acts, we're like, uh, yeah, but that doesn't exist today. It's sort of like reading a fairy tale about a French forest known as Verdun. And to say, oh, yeah, well, I don't know that it ever really existed. I remember seeing uh, something when I was on history.com, and it was like a little box that came up. It's like, uh, was Jesus actually a real historical character? Uh, and it's like, when you start to question, it's like, and I remember even one of the substatements was, the Bible seems to think so. And it's like, uh, we don't ask if like, uh, the pharaohs of Egypt were real characters. What, what is it that, why would we question that which is good and right and true and pure. But it's like, if it, there's all sorts of things we don't question as far as history. We know that it existed, but why is it that we question the beautiful stuff, the good stuff? And the forests of Redun, if all you've known is a zone rouge your entire life, you could imagine how hard it would be to imagine what it used to be like. And yet that's the same for many of us. What did heroic, true Christianity look like? You go back to the Garden of Eden, and we used to have the enchanted forests of Redun, if you want to say it that way. And yet none of us tasted it, none of us ever saw it, and so we could have a cynicism in our understanding towards these things. How did Galadriel say it? Since we're on J.R.R. Token, she's that uh, elf uh, character in uh, The Lord of the Rings. And some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History became legend, legend became myth. And for most of what Christianity is, that's a a great enunciation for it. What we are called to used to be something that should never have been forgotten or lost. And yet, that great history has now been morphed into legend. Oh, it was once said that great Christians lived this way, and then that becomes myth. It's like, well, yeah, but that's just myth. You know, it's just hyperbolized reality. It never actually existed. Christianity used to be so much more. And I'm going to make a statement here. It's possible to get it back. So a study in Rouge, but then I cut, it, cut that out, and we're going to say a study in Ruddy, because that rhymes. Uh, <laughs> but the Bible uses the term Ruddy which means the same thing as rouge, which means the same thing as red. And it's a study in red. Because when I say a zone rouge, your first impression is an area that is cordoned off in France with the skull and crossbones, and it's a place of death. And I don't blame you since that's what I just introduced you to. Okay, and that is a zone rouge by definition. The red zone. Now, some of you that are football fans know that there's also a red zone uh, in football. I think it's within the 20-yard line, uh, you know, to the to the end zone. And but that's a new term that was used for it, and to explain, you know, how offenses and defenses work in that zone. Uh, but I want to introduce you to two different versions of the red zone. Now, it's important to note, and I brought this up last night for the newly arriving students, that there's always twos. Okay, and so it's interesting when you deal with red that there's two different reds in Scripture. So when we do a study of ruddy, there's a first and there's a second. And so last night I I, I gave you a quick introduction. I'll do it again right now, but the Bible itself is even broken up into twos, Old Covenant and New. 
But even then, humanity is broken up into two. You have Adam, and then you have the second man. So he's the first man. Then you have the second man who's known as Jesus, even though he's 77 generations later. Paul in, in Corinthians actually calls him the second man. He's called the last Adam. So you have the first Adam, and then you have the last Adam. Two. And then all throughout the Bible, you're going to see twos. Even in the, in the Garden of Eden, you see two trees, even though there's other trees. And you see the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see Cain and Abel, two. And then the first is never satisfying. It's the second one that pleases God. So Cain, his offering does not satisfy, but Abel's does. Ishmael, Isaac. Esau, Jacob. Saul, David. All throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see this pattern because it's setting a pace. It's helping us understand what Paul is going to refer to in the New Testament as flesh and spirit. And then multiple stories are going to be given. You have tares and you have wheat. You have goats and you have sheep. And you're going to see the separation of two because even the kingdom itself, you know, we have two different kingdoms. You have dark and you have light. You have the kingdom that is death and you have the kingdom that is life. And so as a result, you're going to see that distinguishing between all of these things. And you have to be born again is what Jesus says which means you are a first, you are in Adam, you're a descendant of the first system. And you must exit that system, and how do you do that? By faith. By faith, you exit the system of the first and enter into the system of the second. Well, the same is true with the term red in Scripture. You have a first version of the term red, which sounds very odd, doesn't it? So 1 Samuel 17, 42, and when the Philistine looked about, speaking of Goliath, and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. This guy was red. Now, I've already told you which one, which red uh, David was, right? He wasn't a first. That was Saul. He was a second. And he was a man after God's own heart. But it's interesting that he's called red. Because red seems like it should be a bad term in Scripture. And I, I'll give you reasons why. Ruddy, is it a good word or a bad word? Well, it sort of depends here. I mean, this is a tough one because if you know about uh, the history of you know, sin and who is the first uh, man to really you know, blow it, his name is Adam, which would sort of like be the equivalent of red man or the red one. Uh, so he's made of dust. He's made of the earth. And so there's a bad side of ruddy. It's of the earth, earthy. So when the Bible seems to talk about the earth and the soil of the earth. It seems to see it as red, which makes sense if you're in Colorado, okay? I'm sure there's other places in the world where you're like, it's not very red here, but in Colorado, or color red, oh, uh, that's actually where our name comes from. So we have red rocks and we have red soil in various places, so it makes sense here, okay? But that's actually uh, seems to have, maybe this is sort of a key parallel with the Garden of Eden. See, I like Colorado, and that was a little plug for it right there. But it's, this first red is of the earth, earthy. It's of this world, worldly. It's not of heaven. It bears the same color, the same hue of the cursed ground from which it was fashioned. It's the color of the first man, the old man, also known as the flesh, the carnal, the Adam condition. So that's the symbol of red in the Bible. And so if you say, is ruddy a good word or a bad word? Well, I'd say if that's all you saw, you'd be like, oh, boo, boo, ruddy. We don't like ruddy. You know, red's a bad color, and none of you would ever want to wear red after you uh, heard this message. You'd be like, oh, no, I don't want to be of the color of this earth. There's a few of you in red right now that are panicking. It's like you didn't know when you got dressed this morning that this was going to pop up on the screen. So Adam and the Lord God formed Adam, or man, of the dust of the Adama, earth, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam, man, became a living being. And that concept of Adam is red. It's of the earth, earthy. Esau, he's a first. Remember I said Esau, Jacob, the twins in the womb of Rebekah. And Esau comes out first, hairy all over right? And I'm guessing his hair was red hair too. So he was hairy all over with red hair. And uh, in the first came out Adomai, Ad Admoni, which is red or ruddy all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. 
And Esau said to Jacob, remember this birthright situation uh, where Jacob's sort of conning him into selling his birthright for a bowl of porridge? Uh, and Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same Adom pottage, red pottage. Isn't that funny that the pottage is even red? It's with a bait for him. For I am faint, therefore was his name called Edom, red, like Adam, bearing the nature of the firstborn from that point forward. So the Edomites are flowing straight out of this. They're descendants of Esau. And he was named Edom because of this situation, the red pottage. He was named Edom because he chose the red of this earth over something greater. He forsook the greater. And I could give you a hint by saying the greater red. In other words, there's a red that we are designed for. There's a red of this earth. So all of you that are wearing red, there is hope for you today. The good side of ruddy, it's the color of life. It's the symbol of the heart of blood, energy, and zeal. Think about that. When you are uh, full of passion, what happens? Your face flushes red. And so there's also a red of life. It's the color of the heavenly clothing, the robe of righteousness. It's like the shed blood of Jesus. What color would his robe of righteousness be? Red. It's the color of the second man, the one clothed in scarlet, covered in blood as he went to battle against the giant, the spirit, the heavenly, the last Adam. So there's David, and what color is he as he's standing up against the giant? He was ruddy. Now I want you to think of Jesus when he stands against the giant of sin on the cross. What color was he? His body was covered with red. Isn't that amazing? And so as a result, you see that just like David approached Goliath in the old, so does Jesus approach the Goliath of sin, ruddy. But it's a different sort of ruddy. It's the heavenly ruddy instead of the earthly ruddy. So Adam was red, and he's called the first man. Esau was a first. And because he forsook the heavenly, he, he came under a judgment. And he's always the symbol of that which God says, no, don't go in that direction. Escape that direction. The last Adam, he's not marked by the ruddiness of this earth, but by the ruddiness of heaven's life. His name is Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 15. Now you'll probably understand this a little more. This is interesting. This, this passage doesn't make a lot of sense unless you understand sort of what I've already laid out. There is a natural body, that's the first, and there is a spiritual body, that's the second. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, that's the first, became a living being. The last Adam, a second, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual, that's the second, is not first, but the natural, that's first. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So the first man, I'm going to paraphrase, is red, but red of this earth. The second man bears the red of heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who were made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So all of us have borne the image of Adam. And that is our great flaw that needs to be fixed. But just as we bore his image in sin, so by faith when we enter into Christ, we bear the image of the heavenly man. There are two red zones. One is Mordor, and the other is Christ. One is the dead zone, and the other is Christ. Now, as you arrive at Ellerslie, you can be around truth, but still be not producing the fruit of it in your life. And there is a need for us, for those of us that have been in a zone rouge in the classic like French sense with the skull and crossbones and nothing good is being produced in your life, we have to come to the end of ourselves and say, God didn't intend me to remain fenced in with arsenic in my soil and bringing death to that world around me. He intends to redeem me. He intends to do something different and bring back something new. And that's what we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. 
That is one of the most extraordinary promises and statements of fact that the Bible boasts. That even when you have been a zone rouge in the, in the World War I French landscape sense, where that which was originally intended to be God's domain, God's dwelling, to showcase the glory of God, something has gone terribly wrong, and it's called sin, and it's ravaged this life. That any one of us that would humble ourselves and turn from this life and believe in Jesus Christ are made new. And there is a restorative process that begins to take place. And you could say, but that's impossible because I have arsenic in my soil. I have literally artillery shells in there that could go off at any time. I mean, there's how many bones could be you know, in this territory? This is just dead zone. And God says, let me have it. Let me have it. And if he has it, he can do something with your life to make it fertile. And even taking that which the enemy planted to make it acidic, to make it dead, he can take all of that and turn it into a profound picture of life. Your job is to believe him that he can do it. Many of us have more faith in the power of sin to ravage us than we do in the power of Jesus to deliver us from the power of sin. Think about that. Where does your faith lie? Does your faith lie in the power of sin over your life? Or do you believe that Jesus is greater? Basking in the redemptive power of our God, he takes the dead zone and turns it into something extraordinary. So what I want to do is I want to just finish with a meditation out of Revelation 21, which is one of my favorite spots in Scripture. Uh, and I just want us to see what God does, the work of God. Now, this is going to be talking about the new Jerusalem, the heavenly kingdom, where he's going to take an old earth and he's going to make it new. But what I want you to see is that you are that Jerusalem. Now, even though this is talking about the corporate Jerusalem, all of us, I want you to recognize that what he does in the corporate, he does in the individual. And so as you listen to this, I want you to allow this to be your reality. This is what is true for every one of us as a believer. I don't care how dark, how bad. I don't care what has invaded your soil. If you turn to Jesus Christ, he takes all of that, that poisonous additive, and he converts it into a fertilizer. And some of you have a lot of fertilizer just waiting to help grow this up because God is very good at converting what the enemy has meant to destroy you into a profound picture of his grace and glory. But your job is to let him have it. Your job is to turn over your zone rouge, your dead territory, and say, Lord, have it. You know, when I'm walking through biblical counseling with people, one of the first things that I'll note when I see that someone lacks fervor or they lack care or they lack affection is usually it's an issue of unforgiveness in your life. You know, if you just sort of have that heavy mass in the middle of your life, in the middle of your heart, you know, it's just like, you know, do you love God? Well, you know, I esteem him. He's a great character, but I don't have affection. But then if you think about it, you don't really have affection for anyone. You know, you don't feel a lot. Why? Because there's a dead zone. Well, how did that happen? Well, we got some arsenic in there. How did that get in there? Unforgiveness. You see, the enemy is very good, just like Eric von Falkenhayn. He's going to go right to the sacred national treasure. He's going to go right after God's property. He says, I'm going to blow that up. And, you know, he's gone at, the enemy has gone after God's treasure, which is you. And there are things that he's very good at conning you into, and you've opened up doors and allowed in an invasion. And yet at any point in time when you just say, all right, enough is enough. This is now a zone rouge of a different territory, of a different nature. This is God's zone rouge, different red. This is now under the shed blood of Jesus. And as a result, everything changes. When you bring your life and your territory under the care of Jesus Christ, he converts all of that into a beautiful picture, and he restores, and here's, get this, to even a greater degree than it originally was. You take that enchanted forest, 
put it on steroids and you start to get a little taste of what God intends to do in us as believers. He's not just bringing us back to the way we were. He's bringing us to a far superior place because he's leveraging what the enemy did. He's taking all of our boneheaded maneuvers, our big-time mistakes, and he's actually weaving them into even a greater picture. It's like the crop that grows out of our life is even greater, which has caused Christians throughout the ages to wonder, well, if God's grace increases where there's sin, should I then go on sinning? Because it seems that grace increases and abounds when I do. Well, that isn't the right way to think about it, because that would show that you're living in a first-man condition. But when you convert to a second-man way of thinking, then you recognize and you smirk at all the enemy has tried to do in your life and even your mistakes because you are now bringing them under his zone rouge, under his covering of blood, and it converts it into a greater power and it causes your life to thrive. And it's interesting, if any of you can testify of this, where you made big mistakes in your life, but then you came to Jesus, it's interesting how he uses your big mistakes and turns it into part of your ministry. And now suddenly you have a great heart for those that are making the same boneheaded mistakes. And you have a voice into their life. You see, God takes what the enemy created as his zone rouge. And he redeems it into his version of a zone rouge. His red zone. You are meant to go from the enemy's red zone into God's. And when you do, everything changes. So basking in the redemptive power of our God, he takes the dead zone and turns it into something extraordinary. So I want you to recognize this isn't just the global church, this is also you as an individual. So if you look at the, uh, the verse reference, it's quite a big bit all the way through uh, chapter 22, verse 5. But I'm going to take pieces out because it's, it's a lot. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I saw no temple in the New Jerusalem, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Isn't that a great line? Just to lift that one line out and stick it on your refrigerator and stare at it every day. The Lamb is its light. That's, that's our truth. It's not just the truth of the New Jerusalem. That's our truth. And isn't it interesting, the Lamb... It's like he's a lion, but he gets termed a lamb. He's so gentle. He takes, uh, he gave his life for us, though we are so undeserving. And he came, though he is a lion, and he came and gave up his life as a lamb. And as a result, he has changed everything for us. And he, even in the New Jerusalem, is our light. Isn't that amazing? The lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And so if you look at this as a zone rouge, you know, there should be no more arsenic, there shall be no more uh, artillery shells that are going to blow up and destroy people. All the death is being converted. That's God's way. This is God's way. Big picture, as we're seeing here, and small picture, as we see in each of our lives. So if the writer, if John was watching your life as he sees you being changed by Jesus, he'd be like, I see that Adam has passed away, and behold, they are a new creature. They are a new creature. 
And no longer do they function the way they used to function, but now the Lamb is their light. And all things have been made new. And all that once was death in them has converted. There's no more curse. There's no more death. There's no more of that selfish fervor that you've had. Now there is something completely different that rules you. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no more night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Oh boy, that is good stuff. There's a reason why we should hang out in this territory of Revelation and remember our God's plan, our God's purposes for us. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would drive this idea deep into our soul, that you are a God of redemption, that though the enemy has sought to destroy you are a God who has sought to redeem. You have come to seek and to save that which is lost. You have come to seek and to save that which has been destroyed by the enemy's business. Lord, and I pray that you would take this territory known as us that is fenced off as dangerous territory and that you would convert it, tear down the fences, remove all the barricades, and Lord, cause it to be truly a territory that brings life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. May they grow here. And may the Lamb be our light. Lord, we love you. It's in the precious name we pray these things. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.